the Y curve with Phil Dobby and Roger Hearing. Are we on the cusp of a new Middle East war? Does the bombing of Yemen by the US and the UK threaten to bring Iran into the crisis caused by Israel and Hamas in Gaza? If a small rebel group can threaten to choke off one of the world's major trade arteries, threatening the global economic recovery, does the West have any choice but to intervene? Or are the US and Britain dangerously escalating the conflict in ways no one can predict? The why curve. So I've got some numbers from yeah. Reuters just to get the scale of yeah. all of this. So the daily freight traffic through the Red Sea this time of the year, and it doesn't change yeah. a great deal through the year, is expected to be, guess this, 600,000 25-foot uh, containers or 20-foot containers. 600,000. 600,000 per day is how much mm. normally goes through the Red Sea. And now it's going round, round the bottom of the, uh, the Yeah, cave. so now 200,000 is mm. uh, the latest numbers of what is going through. So it's down by two-thirds. Yeah, yeah. And, they're saying, and the World Bank, I think, is saying that the, the, the global eco economic recovery is potentially at threat just yeah. because of the amount of stuff that isn't getting there or isn't getting there on time. Well, there's, yeah, I mean, there's three factors at play on, though. Because they're, because they're going around the, uh, the, the Horn of Africa, mm. then we are seeing... Not the Horn of Africa, uh, the Cape. The Cape of Africa, I should say. Sorry, it's it's uh, it's taking longer. Obviously, mm. it adds two weeks or more to the mm. to the journey. That means for those two weeks, so there's extra fuel involved in that. Yeah. And all of those uh, containers, of course, now are tied up, which means they can't be used for the next trip. So there's a yeah. shortage of supply. And also, as some well. companies are just say, look, the extra cost isn't doesn't make it worth our while. Then yeah, exactly. And if they go through the if they go through the, uh, yeah. the the Suez Canal, the insurance costs now have gone up to one percent of the value Gosh. of the ship. So if you've got a hundred and I'm not sure whether this includes or excludes the, the cargo, but you've got a lot of these container vessels are 100 million each. So it's a million dollars just to do that, just for that one trip. It, I mean, really, and, and this thing, this is how it is now. Mm. The fact is that it's a, it, this it, it, could, it, it, it could get, get dramatically worse. worse. Well, the whole yeah. issue with this is: is Iran about to get involved? Will it have no choice? Mm. It's backing the Houthis. We know that it supplied them with weapons. Yeah, we know that the uh, the US and the UK apparently privately have sent messages to Tehran saying, "Look, just just cool it." But there's no evidence necessary they will. Um, mm. And there's all sorts of flashpoints. There's attacks by militias in Iraq on U.S. soldiers in Iraq and Syria. And they're backed by Iran as well. And we yeah. know that Hezbollah is backed by Iran. And they're in Lebanon. Mm. We know that Hamas is backed by Hezbollah, uh, by Iran. And they're obviously in Gaza. But how did Tehran cool it? I mean, if the Houthis want to carry on mm. uh, throwing missiles at ships, I mean, they're just going to keep on doing it. And they are saying, in theory, it's yeah. because of what is happening um, by the Israelis. In, in Gaza, yeah. Uh, and I mean, I, I think it's more than theory. I mean, I think they are trying to make a point. But they're also trying to make a point for their own people. You know, we're on the side of on the right side as far as they're concerned of this conflict. Mm. So there's a lot of implications. But if Iran does get drawn in, I mean, this is just going to be something pretty massive. Mm. And there's already been uh, issues in the Gulf as well with ships being seized, one ship being seized by the Iranians just last week. So something's on the way. Um, yeah, but could it all calm down if there is a deal reached uh, over Gaza? Uh, and, the fight, and the fighting starts. It is a big if, but at some point, there's, there's, there's so little left. Mm. Uh, you know, the fighting has to stop because, I mean, what is it? I'm hearing figures saying like 70% of all residences now have been destroyed. Have been destroyed. So there has mm. to be a point at which you have to say, well, okay, uh, complete annihilation is over now. Yeah, I'm not back. sure whether, I'm not, so it stops, but whether that makes anybody happy well, because obviously you're, you're left with a situation. Yeah. And then what happens next? Well, Who takes control? There are an awful lot of very, very angry Palestinians who have no interest and perhaps nothing to lose in, in, in mm. doing the worst they can. So, I mean, the whole 
whole thing is potentially, you know, one talks about uh, a tinderbox, but this really is. Anyway, so let's, bring, we, in, yeah, let's okay. bring in our guest who knows yeah, all this in rather more detail than we do. And that's Shahin Modaris, who's the security analyst at the international team for the study of security based in Verona. He joins us now. So, Shaheen, do you, first of all, do you think Britain and America has done the right thing? They, of course, would say that they've got no, no choice uh, but to have uh, started to uh, take fire against the Houthis. But is the, what, is it, was it a sensible move, do you think? I think what they did was right, but I believe that it was uh, kind of too late to do that. It's something that should have happened much earlier. In order to understand that, I think we should take a look at who the Houthis are and what they are made of. Well, they are a proxy group for the Islamic Republic of Iran. That is a known fact. They are being supported by for both military aspect and economic aspect, again, by the Islamic Republic of Iran. And the main thing is that the Islamic Republic, after the 1979 revolution, not having the capacity to somehow perform research and development activities or not having scientific collaboration with the world because of the sanctions, they came to understand that they could not be a power, a regional power, in, with the current state of the warfare and weapons that they had. So they came up with the idea since 1979, they came up with the idea of having, first of all, a very strong missile program. And the second thing that came to their mind, in my opinion, was to have proxy groups in order to somehow extend the boundaries and extend the borders that they considering themselves within the region. Houthis are a part of this doctrine. And, and Hezbollah are the same, I guess. That it's part exactly, of the same thing. Exactly. Exactly. Hezbollah is another creation of the Islamic Republic of Iran. Same as the Houthis. And the fact is they just look for minorities within regional societies to find usually Shia minorities within the regional countries and they try to support them and somehow increase the level of tension and increase the atrophy within the country in order to later use the same tension and same conflict as a leverage when they go during negotiations. So the the question about whether this is going to escalate and involve Iran, I mean, from what you're saying, it already has. They're already involved. They are already involved, yes because they are direct supporters of the Houthis, of Hezbollah, of Hamas, of the Islamic Jihad of Palestine, of uh, Kataib al-Hezbollah in Iraq, of uh, Hashd al-Shabi in Iraq. More than 40 militias and 40 proxy groups within the region are working under the direct order of the Islamic Republic and the Ayatollahs in Tehran. So the, the attempt in the, in the past to try and control the Houthis, I mean, there's obviously a lot of arms that have been fed to Saudi Arabia to help fight against them uh, for the, uh, for the Yemen, gov- Yemen government. I mean, that's all been to no avail. Why Why have they been so unsuccessful? They have been unsuccessful because Saudi Arabia chose a different path and Saudi Arabia chose to only fight the Houthis through aerial means. That is the reason why they somehow failed because Houthis being an unconventional, being actually experts in unconventional guerrilla warfare, 
they have partisan techniques they know how to hide within the Yemeni regions and it's their own region so they have the advantage they are very good at it they can just do it doing that by aerial support is only and solely by aerial support is just impossible to do that's the reason but that is exactly what the UK and the US have done they've just uh, done the same thing as the Saudis so they're going to be as effective as uh, as they you know as we've seen over the past decade or so yeah but not, not necessarily not the same. The situation and the context is quite different. In the other context, Saudi Arabia had no idea where they are. Mostly, they had no idea where they are heading. They just had a very strong aerial campaign. They used that in order to hit the Houthis. But in the US-UK case, they know exactly the points that will have an effect on Houthis' logistics. So we can see that they mostly destroyed the stores where they used to keep their weapons, their infrastructures, and that will eventually weaken the Houthis and make sure that in case there is a full escalation and a confrontation, their logistics will be defective. Well, you say in case there's a real confrontation. I mean, what the Houthis have been doing is firing missiles at ships. In fact, they have done so in the last uh, last few days. It, it's not stopped. Does that mean that this has been ineffective or does it mean there needs to be more? Yeah, because the because the line was, wasn't it, that this is a one-off, just a one-off strike. And then we had one the next day, which is sort of like, well, let's just finish it off. Uh, but clearly it's not fully worked. Exactly. The thing is that the Houthis has crossed the red line, yet somehow US and the UK still have not decided to cross that line to go through a full-scale confrontation. And I don't think UK is... Uh, somehow guilty for that. It appears that the Biden administration has allowed the Iranian proxies to maneuver so long and so far and tends to continue so because with the upcoming elections, this is not the right time to start a war. It appears that President Biden and his administration are only trying to have some mechanisms of the crisis control in order to control the conflict and the regional conflict so that it does not expand more within the region whilst they do not have any real decision in the White House in order to face the Houthis or other proxy groups by the Islamic Republic. So what you're saying is there's no real, they don't want obviously to have a major regional war. Is there just going to be a little bit more of this bombing perhaps every few weeks just to keep the situation under control? I mean, if the Houthis keep on firing missiles and we're seeing, you know, shipping down by two thirds now through the Red Sea, uh, I mean, that situation, uh, whether they want a war or not, I mean, that's not going to be allowed to continue through this year up to the next US election, is it? No, this cannot continue because we are speaking about a pathway that somehow controls and allows 12% of the global world trade and pathway that has a lot to do with the energy market. It's not going to stay like that. What I'm saying is that the reason that they are maneuvering so much so far is because of the indifference of the Biden administration mostly and the Democrats in the White House. I'm not sure if it's going to stay the same way in close future or in long term future or not. But what I know that is this current situation, this current condition is not acceptable. The remaining scenarios for this will be U.S. having a full confrontation with the Houthis. That's one of the options. And in this case, the Islamic Republic of Iran will be involved as well. well hang on, let's just, the, you mentioned a full-scale confrontation. Do you mean 
troops on the ground in Yemen? Would would that be what you'd be mentioning? Well, that that is possible. Yes, that is one of the possibilities. Because considering this situation is one of the remaining possibilities because it is not, I repeat, it is not possible to go on like this. We cannot have the Red Sea and the Bubble Man have a straight region insecure like this for so long. Yeah, for the global it's economy can't market. work that way. Exactly, exactly. But that is not a war just against the Houthis then, is it? That, that is a battle against Iran. Exactly, that is a battle against the Islamic Republic and the thing is, it's like a domino, because once you hit the Houthis, then you have to go through with Hezbollah, then Hamas will be more active, then the Islamic Jihad will be more active. Then, as always, we see the uh, some, the militants supported by the Islamic Republic of Iran in Iraq and Syria will begin hitting the U.S. bases within Iraq and Syria. These are all episodes that we have seen so far. Right now that we are speaking, last night, four ballistic missiles hit Erbil in the Kurdistan province of Iraq. And it was caused by the Islamic Republic. And they said in an official statement that we were trying to destroy a safe house of Mossad, they ended up killing two innocent uh, Kurdish Iraqi civilians. Yeah, so, so what think, you're saying is it's escalating already. I mean, we're talking a couple of days before this goes out, but what you're saying is already we're seeing the signs of, yeah, yeah. of escalation. We can already see signs of an escalation, yes. Right, but there's no interest for anybody in that happening, is there? So, I mean, if, if, we, if we see that level of escalation, ships are still not getting through the Red Sea and through the Suez Canal. We've still, we're still going to see this. Well, they're down by two-thirds now. I mean, if, if we see an escalating situation, they could be down even more. So it doesn't solve that problem, does it? No, it doesn't. But when we look at the scenario, it's important to understand that it's not like no one is winning this situation. The country that is winning this situation, in my opinion, is Russia. Because think about it. Russia, the same way that the Islamic Republic uses Houthis and Hezbollah and is Yemen as its satellite groups, as its proxy groups, Russia has been doing the same thing with Iran itself. Russia has been playing Iran as a card during the nuclear negotiations. That's a really and, interesting point, isn't it? That Russia is that Iran is Russia's Hezbollah almost. It's a weird exactly. thought, but that's what you're saying. Exactly, exactly. I- Iran is Russia's Hezbollah, unfortunately for the Iranian people, because that's what the Islamic Republic politicians has created. I mean, look at it. When the October 7th attack happened, what was the thing that happened the day after? The price of oil started rising okay that's very important for russia because providing for the war in ukraine they need they benefit from uh, an oil that has been a price uh, oil price that has been increased already you can see that's the same reason why they left the OPEC plus and somehow betrayed Saudi Arabia at the OPEC plus for the same reason, for the oil price in order to have it increased. The second thing that happened after the October 7th attack that benefited Russia was the fact that the US had to send the Navy troops to the region, to the Mediterranean Sea and to the Persian Gulf region. The Ford and Eisenhower navies were sent Again, this somehow deviated the U.S.'s concentration on the situation in Ukraine. And finally, the thing that really helped Russia on October 7th attack that was supported and was triggered and somehow was planned and trained for by, by members of Hamas 
in the Islamic Republic of Iran, what happened was that the major media attention instead of Ukraine went on the Israel Gaza situation. The same thing happens at the Red Sea. Every day that this goes on, the oil price is raising. That is good for Russia. The level of trade from east to west is being somehow defected. That's again something that Russia benefits from. And again, continuing the same policy and the same doctrine that they had in Ukraine by somehow destroying the grain settlements in Ukraine in the regions of Odessa in order to make the global market insecure. They are now doing the same thing through the Islamic Republic within the region. Shaheen, I mean, I, I hear what you're saying, obviously, about uh, Iran being, you know, in effect, almost a kind of puppet of Russia. But in Iran itself, I'm sure they don't think of themselves that way. What are they thinking right now? What do they want? Are they do they want to have a full on confrontation? Do they want a, the, the local what's going on in the Red Sea to escalate to a point where perhaps the US is threatening Iran? And, and what will they gain from that? Mm. It's really hard to comment on this, you know, because. In the field of international relations, when you have an actor, you should analyze that actor's behavior based on certain indexes and certain approaches. But when you have an irrational actor that changes everything, and honestly, nobody knows what the Ayatollahs in Tehran really want. Nobody knows what will be their next move. All we can say that is apparently they a part, a fraction within the Islamic Republic believes that they do need a war, a full escalation and confrontation in order to somehow reinforce their identity and in order to be released of the certain economic pressure that they are having now because of the sanctions of the international community. Is this the IRGC that you're talking about, the Revolutionary Guard? A, a part of the a fraction of the IRGC is thinking like that. Whilst the truth is, uh, I think a majority of people related to the Islamic Republic, they also know that they cannot stand the chance in a full confrontation. And it will be their demise because let's be frank about it. It's not, if something happens, it's not just going to be an external factor. Also, the internal factors, people within Iran are quite inconvenient with the current system, with the current regime. They want change. They were shouting not for reform this time. They were shouting for a complete revolution in which the Islamic Republic will be gone as a result of it. And they know the risks that they are facing, but they are in a very bad situation. They are in a dead-end situation because they have two options. They either should stay silent and be indifferent, and that will make them lose more fans and followers within the country, and there are already a few. The second choice is to enter this conflict and try to fight in which the whole region will be on fire. Let's be honest about it, because most of the proxy groups in the region will start shooting at the American bases, and the U.S. will retaliate, of course, even though it's the Biden administration. But at that point, they have no other choice. They have to go through with this. And that will lead into the demise of the Ayatollahs. Yeah, but what, so why would they want to engineer that situation then? And, and also, I mean, let's get back to Gaza. How much of this really is to do with what's happening in Gaza. I mean, the Houthis have said, well, this is our response and uh, we want a ceasefire in Gaza. If there was a ceasefire, would that solve this situation? Or is that just being used as, as an excuse? 
that was being used as an excuse. You know, let me tell you something. In Iran, there's a newspaper called Kehan. Kehan is quite close to the Ayatollah and to the Islamic Republic and the IRGC. And it's really interesting because every time something happened in Iran, they used to right away write in the Kehan newspaper that is government-owned newspaper. They used to have on the first page with Big tie, this big title that said, we will close the Strait of Hormuz in the Persian Gulf if the situation goes on like this. Now, they are doing the same thing thanks to their proxy groups, this time not in the Persian Gulf region, but in the Red Sea region and the Babel Mandab Strait instead of the Hormuz Strait. So they are just trying to show their power and they are also trying to put more pressure on Israel in order to not to completely destroy Hamas because they know very well, Tehran knows very well, that in case their proxy groups are defeated one by one, they will have nothing to say in the region. They will lose uh, more than half of their power and the military doctrine that they have because again, I repeat, their military doctrine is based on two facts, proxy groups and the missile ballistic program. Nothing more than that. They do not have anything. They do not have an air force. They do not have a conventional army. They do not have, they are not quite advanced with their Marines. This is all they have. And they know once they use Hamas in Gaza, once they use Hezbollah in Lebanon, Houthis in Yemen, and other militants in Iraq and Syria, they will have nothing more to present. That's the main reason why they continue to do this. So they want they want a ceasefire, really, in Gaza. In Gaza. They want that because they don't want uh, Hamas to be destroyed. But, I mean, it sounds like everything you're talking about there is is on the roadmap right now. I mean, obviously, Israel is out there to destroy Hamas. We've already talked about whether the, the U.S. are going to be trying to take the Houthis. I mean, all of those proxy groups that you're talking about, one by one, it sounds like they may, may be taken out. Exactly. And, and that that is the reason why ceasefire is not a good idea. Because at this point, if Israel goes through, I, I, I mean, I'm sorry to hear the numbers that are increasing day by day. It's heartbreaking to know about how many people are dying. Either they are Israeli Jewish or people. This is Gaza. the casualties in Gaza you're talking yeah, about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm talking about the casualties in Gaza. I mean, it's heartbreaking. I can understand that. But the problem is, if we go through a ceasefire today, first of all, there will be a no, no Israel tomorrow because we saw what Hamas is capable of. And second of all, the thing is, if we go through a ceasefire today, they will be reunited, they will be reinforced, and they will find new ways. And the the proxy doctrine of the Islamic Republic will say the same. However, the current situation is not only Israel is trying to defeat Hamas completely, they're also going after the Hezbollah after that. And it appears that there's already a coalition against the Houthis that will help to destroy them as well. But Shaheen, isn't the problem in all this, though? When this goes on, you talked about the casualties. Every day, people across the, the Muslim world and particularly across the Arab world are seeing this, and they will feel angry, they do feel angry, and the support for the groups you're talking about will just increase. And indeed, the support for Iran as being the one actor in the region that's actually doing something about it. Well, my experience is that most of the people from the the Arab countries that you mentioned, they do not appreciate what's happening in their countries. And my personal experience is that they hate the Islamic Republic. Because when I talk with my Arab friends, 
one of the things that they say always is this, that if the Islamic Republic finally falls, not only the Iranian people will be liberated, but also the people of Yemen, Lebanon, Israel, Palestine, Iraq, Syria, name it, name it, many countries in the region. I mean, even Saudi Arabia, United Arab Emirates, Bahrain, Qatar, all these countries are somehow suffering the policies and the military doctrine of the Islamic Republic within the region because, unfortunately, what they have brought is nothing more than instability. The Islamic Republic of Iran doesn't know how to construct a diplomatic dialogue. All they know is how to create more problems and later use the same problems as leverages and means of diplomacy during their negotiations. When I watch Al Jazeera, though, which obviously comes from Qatar, they are, you know, very much pushing for for a ceasefire. Obviously, the UN Secretary General uh, Antonio Guterres is calling for a ceasefire as well. You think all these people are wrong? In my opinion, ceasefire is not a good idea right now. Ceasefire means mm. giving Hamas the possibility to regroup and to have a reinforced or reshaped sort of identity, but with the same mentality. But, but so, they exist in other places too. I mean, Hamas isn't just in Gaza. They have bases elsewhere. Isn't it just even if they, the Israelis, as they almost have, level Gaza, Hamas will simply operate from somewhere else? It's not that simple. We have two types of terrorist groups when we talk about the Islamic and the jihadi world. We have the vertical ones and the horizontal ones. The vertical ones, like uh, Al-Qaeda, what they care about is the order of command that they have and the, uh, the Islamic ideology. However, when it comes to the horizontal groups, such as Hamas, the order of command exists, but there is also another element. In groups such as ISIS and such as Hamas, the territorial factor is quite important and significant because when they use territory, the order of command somehow is not going to be enough because there is no one commander-in-chief, but they are actually different field commanders as the same structure that we can see from Hamas today. So once they use their territories, once they use their fortifications and their infrastructures and the tunnels and the weaponry stocks that they have created in Gaza, their power will be diminished and will be diminished significantly. And there is not much they can do after that. That's the difference between a group such as Hamas and Al-Qaeda. So if there was a ground offensive against the Houthis in Yemen, uh, and the US went in, and the UK perhaps as well, who would be there supporting them in the Middle East? Would Saudi Arabia and the UAE, two countries that you mentioned, would they be part of this? It's probable that Saudi Arabia and the UAE joined this coalition because Saudi Arabia came to some sort of non-written ceasefire with the Houthis after they saw that they cannot destroy them through aerial means. It appears that there is de facto understanding between the countries of not attacking each other, um, not two countries, between the Saudi Arabia and the Houthis, because they are somehow occupying Yemen, to be honest. And so the end game, which which sounds dangerous to me, is we want a regi- regime change in Iran. Well, we've wanted that. I mean, the, the West but has a, wanted that for a for long, long time. time. But I mean, it's... It, to try and push for that. I mean, you know, bitter experience tells yeah. us don't push for regime change in the Middle East because it invariably creates all sorts of connotations and, and, of perhaps it, unforeseen. It, I mean, but it, is that is that the end game here? Yeah, it is not the end game. But the thing is, head of the snake is in Tehran. 
The tail was in Gaza, yes. The body is in Lebanon, a part of it in Syria, a part of it in Iraq. But the head of the snake is in Tehran. And as long as the Ayatollah's regime in Iran stays, the situation will be the same because if not the Houthis, if not Hezbollah, they will find another groups because this is who they are. This is what they do. This is their military and their defense doctrine. And as long as they are in power, this thing will happen. And they will be out of power only when Iran has a democratic alternative that can present instead of the Ayatollahs. An external factor will not be enough in this equation. What, what do the Saudis want in all this? Because the Saudis, I mean, obviously historically have been very much the uh, opposed to to Iran, opposed to the the Ayatollahs. Um, but recently, Shane, there's been this sort of uh, diplomatic getting together. There've been a reestablishment of relations, a kind of easing of that confrontation. But does 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 Riyadh still want to get rid uh, of uh, of Iran as a power in the region? Riyadh always wants to get rid of the Ayatollah's regime because of two reasons. First of all, because they try to be this sole, let's say, power, regional power in the Middle East, and that's their dream, and they try to realize that dream. And the second reason is because the Islamic Republic's activities has been bad for the business, has been bad for the economy in all the within all the regional countries, and that's one of the main reasons that makes them angry because they are not able to trade the way they could have traded without the Islamic Republic. The fact that they came for some talks between the two countries is solely because of the reason in order to control the Islamic Republic and in order to make sure that it is some sort of, uh, let's call it, crisis control approach in order to make sure that they will not do more harm. But even now, the embassies are not fully activated within the countries. And even if they were, during the Cold War, the Soviet Union had an embassy in the United States, and the United States had an embassy in Moscow. It didn't mean that they are friends, and it didn't mean that they were not on the verge of going through a full confrontation. So will there ever be peace in the Middle East? I mean, and, and also, how much of this is actually to do uh, with religious sects versus the existence of Israel? Well, as a Middle Eastern, I really like to know the answer to that question, when there will be peace in the Middle East. I look forward to hearing a solid answer about that. Okay, so the second Myself. question, how much, of it is, how much of it is, you know, infighting between... Is it Shia Sunni, really, which is the problem, or is it... And Israel, you know, if Israel didn't exist, would we still be having these wars? Yes, of course we will be having these wars because when you do not have a plan to offer to your people, the first thing that you do is that you try to unite them in, against a made-up enemy. I mean, if you look at the relations between Iran and Israel during a historic timeline, you can see that the two countries have actually always been allies of each other since the ancient times. Later, during the Shah's period, everything was okay with Israel. They even had an embassy in Tehran. There were collaborations between two countries. I mean, the Iranian people and the Jewish people have a common history. We have lots of cultural elements in common. We actually have no problems. But since this 1979 revolution, we have been going on with one of the stupidest and one of the most idiosyncratic wars of the history of international relations. 
which is the Iran-Israeli conflict that has no reason. The main reason is that Ayatollah Khomeini and people from the Islamic Republic who came into power back in 1979 had nothing else to offer. So the first thing that they found was that, okay, we are going to fight the United States, we are going to fight Israel, we are going to be enemies with the whole world. I mean, that's pretty much what Khomeini, the approach that Khomeini had is the same approach that Adolf Hitler had. They are the same because also Hitler not having a plan for the people of Germany came up with the crazy idea and the criminal idea of the Holocaust, which costed six million lives. Yeah. Shane, let me let me you know as we draw towards the end of, of this, you've told us kind of what could happen. What do you think will happen? Do you think there will be that this will escalate into a regional conflict that Iran will be drawn in? and that the US, the UK, the West will have to take this kind of action to deal with what's now really an economic as much as a political I know, problem. It's a question of whether Iran is drawn in or whether Iran has just engineered all of this. It sounds like. But, that, but, that, but that, will that, it that now be a... drawn into the results of what it's mm. engineered? Either if Iran will be drowned in or Iran has been the engineer of all of this, what I know is that this current situation cannot go on like this. We need to have a change. We need to have mechanisms of releasing pressure. And this pressure will not be released only by confrontation, that this, but that is some sort of deterrence of the US and UK against the Houthis. Again, head of this thing is in Tehran. I don't know how long the international community, how long the United States, the United Kingdom, and Israel will tolerate, and also the regional countries will tolerate this. But what I know that Islamic Republic of Iran does not understand the language of democracy, does not language does not understand the language of diplomacy. It's not like we can think of having a rational actor in front of us and trying to maintain a dialogue. It's like having a drunk person in front of us with an automatic weapon in their hand. But where do they get their supplies from then? I mean, surely they can just be frozen out of international trade. I mean, if there's... If they, they already are. There are sanctions on Iran already. But but clearly not working. The, the sanctions are somehow working. But the problem is that in these years, they have created lots of pathways through which they manage to procure what they need from actually what, what is used within the drones that are killing Ukrainians every day. According to the Ukrainian army, most of these drones are having pieces and articles within them that are from the European countries. So it appears that they have fun. It's not like European countries voluntarily are sending these pieces of electronics to Iran so that they can make drones out of it. But it appears that they have found ways in order to import these goods without being noticed. And I think what the most important thing is to make sure that at least they cannot import any more of these goods. Well, Shaheen, thank you so much for giving us a picture, a rather scary picture, I have to say, mm. of... Um, of Might what, be with us for a while, but yes, yeah. I suspect we'll have to come back to this, but thank you for giving us uh, an interesting view on, on what's going on. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. It was a pleasure. So when you see, you start to hear about, you know, what's happening in the Middle East, it makes you appreciate that, you know, even though we think 
Britain is, uh, you know, everything is going wrong here. It's not quite at like least that. We're, at least we're not fighting, you know, at least the Welsh aren't fighting the Scots who are fighting the north of England yet. Uh, yet. It's all uh, coming down the line. Well, no, but, but but this country is definitely in a bit of a mess, I think, yes. pretty much now. I mean, just in terms of the sheer logistics. Yeah, uh, and it's getting worse. Yeah, institutions I, I, not working, the I post mean, office amongst them. Yes, this term, Broken Britain, I mean, when I came back here, which was eight years ago now, mm. I remember thinking there's a lot not quite right about yeah. this country, and it just seems to have got worse over those yeah. over those eight years. But the basics of, of the way things, you know, whether it's hospitals, whether it's the rails, railway service, whether Nothing seems to work. No, not quite. Yeah. I mean, it kind of gets by, but it's all only just. Yeah. And but now stuff we, that you used yeah. to be able to assume, like, for example, if you lived in the home counties, you'd mm. assume that you could get into work every yeah. day. That is a bold assumption. I'd say, you know, mm. my, my wife goes in, I'd say 50% of the time she has mm. a successful trip there and back. Half mm. the time the train, actually, I have to go and pick her up somewhere else because the trains aren't going to yeah, yeah. our local station. I mean, it's just, you cannot assume anything works the way it used to. So broken Britain mm. is an interesting theme and one that obviously with the election coming up, people say, oh, well, what could an incoming administration do that might actually fix it. Well, <laughs> we've got someone who's been writing about that. George Monbiot, the, the Guardian columnist, mm. a well-known voice on many media outlets. He's been talking about this, thinking about this, and we're going to get him to talk to us yeah. about what he thinks could work. Fantastic opportunity for George, isn't it, getting on the on the YK <laughs> next week? So uh, look forward to talking to him then, and that's it for the YK this week. Thanks for listening. Thanks. See you next week. Bye. The Y Curve.